down to listen to the word after enjoying such a tea. So we'll, we'll just pray the Lord will help us as we go on. As the doozy indicated, we're in First Corinthians and we're in chapter number 7. And after such a, a lovely meeting, such great occupation of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're um, coming back down to earth with a bump. I think that would be one of the ways you could describe it. We're really talking about practical things. Paul spent two years with the church at Ephesus. And as he was going up to Rome, he called the elders together from Ephesus and he says, when I was with you, I declared unto you the whole counsel of God. He didn't shun dealing with difficult subjects. And in Corinth, where we're reading about, he spent 18 months with them. And I'm assuming that he did the same thing in Corinth as he did in Ephesus, that he didn't hold back in giving the whole counsel of God. He didn't just preach favourite sermons or tickle people's ears. He addressed, at times, sensitive, difficult, and maybe some uncomfortable uh, subjects. I'm sure he did. And towards the end of his life, he wrote uh, to Timothy, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, amongst other things, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, and for righteousness. So when we're reading 1 Corinthians 7 as the word of God, it's a profitable passage for us to read. We believe in the authority and the sufficiency of the scripture. And I just challenge your own hearts this morning. Are we Christians that believe in the sufficiency? In other words, the Bible is enough. And the authority, in other words, the Bible has the final say. If we are Christians that believe that, we can't change what the word of God says. No matter what the culture says, and no matter what others say, we have to just bow and say, God knows best. God knows best. And when I did swap with the doozy for this particular passage, as I was studying it up, it's a passage at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7. We'll say a little bit about the whole chapter in a minute. But it's a chapter that's serious, no doubt about that. It's sensitive. And at times when I was thinking about it, it was a bit uncomfortable for me to think about preaching on this subject. And when I thought about it, I thought, I wonder why it's uncomfortable for me to just take what the Word of God teaches and preach it. And I discovered that even in my own heart, I've become so influenced by the age that we live in that sometimes the clear teaching of the Word of God, because we're under so much pressure by our culture and our media, that we, we kind of hold back from saying the things that the word of God says clearly. Now that's not an excuse for Christians to be ungracious, unkind and controversial and uh, um, you know combative with the word of God. I'm not suggesting that at all. But we do need to be faithful to the word of God. And this particular chapter deals with two really big subjects. It's a chapter of immense significance for every single believer because it addresses the subject of marriage and 
singleness. And one way or the other, we'll all fit into one of those categories for the rest of our life, won't we? We'll either be married or we'll be single. And the teaching of the passage is that both states ordained by God are equally valid. Right? One is not superior to the other. One is more common than the other. There's no question about that. But one is not superior to the other. That there will be times, mostly times, when God ordains his pattern is that a man and a woman should spend life together as a married couple. That's true. But there's also times when God ordains that a man or a woman, and the Lord Jesus spoke about it actually in the Gospels, he talked about eunuchs for the kingdom of God's sake, didn't he? When people called by God deliberately choose a path of singleness so that they can serve the Lord. And I'm just, that's not my subject today. In one sense, I wish it was because it's very close to my heart. But because at the end of this chapter, I'll say this only because I don't want to steal um, uh, thunder. Singleness has great privilege in it, right? Because it says at the end of the chapter, those the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord, that he may be, she may be body and holy in spirit, that they may attend unto the Lord without distraction. And I, I, here's a here's a lovely um, quote that I got just this week. Those who have been given the gift of singleness will enjoy fewer distractions and they will have more freedom in serving the Lord. In contrast, the married man or woman has an inevitable twofold concern. And I thought that was a lovely, lovely quote. And so the passage will deal this week with marriage and how God sees marriage. And the doozy will uh, talk a little bit, I hope, about next week about singleness. I've spent most of my life as a married man. He spent most of his life as a single man. So probably uh, from an experience point of view, I'm more qualified for the first part and he's more qualified for the second part. But that's by, by the by. So that's what we want to do. We want to talk today about marriage, not so much about singleness. We'll touch on it on matter, but these are serious and sensitive things. This passage, 1 Corinthians 7, covers these things in the minutest of detail. Right? There's a lot of detail about marriage and there's a lot of detail about singleness. And neither me nor the doozy will be able to go through it in the minutest detail. We're only going to be able to take the big lessons from each passage. So, so let's read my, my portion, which is verse 1 to verse uh, 24. I'll try and read it without comment. I may clarify one or two words as we go, but we'll try and read it first of all without comment. And let's allow the word of God by the Spirit of God to speak for himself. Isn't that, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? You always learn things better if you learn them yourself from the Word of God by the Spirit of God. And you're happy, I'm happy to learn from other people, but it's always when you get the thing yourself that it sticks, isn't it? You, you don't forget it. So, so let's read it carefully and pray that the God by his Spirit will use his Word to teach the lessons to us just by very the virtue of reading the Word. Now, concerning the things whereof you wrote to me, it is good for a woman not to touch a man. Let's just, I said I would try not to comment, but in the context of five and six, that expression, not to touch a a woman, sorry, is a, 
polite way, a gentle way, uh, saying not to have sexual relationships, right, okay? And we're going to try and use language that's sensitive and, and tactful rather than that. And he's using a, set, a, a t tactful term. He's talking about it's, it's, it's good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman. Now, he's not saying it's the best thing, and he's not saying it's a better thing, right, okay? That's not what he's saying. He's just saying it's good. If you can manage that, it's good to be without those particular relationships. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, and we know what that means, that means any form of sexual immorality, either in deed or in thought, okay? We've got to understand that, that, that God sees our heart and reads our thoughts as much as he sees our acts. And we sin not just in our body and with our body, but we sin in our mind and with our mind, don't we? And the advent of the internet has made that all the more possible and all the more common. So he says this, nevertheless... To avoid fornication or to avoid get involved in illicit things in that area, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. So in other words, marriage is monogamous. Did you see that? Single. One man, one woman, one man, one woman. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto her husband. They have duties one towards another. Remember, we're talking now in the physical sense. All right? The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise the husband hath not power over his own body. Now, <laughs> doing exactly the thing I was trying to avoid doing, but we won't co cover these things. He's emphasising harmony, unity, and submissiveness to each other in the relationship. There's not one dominant partner in this aspect of their marriage. And I'm trying again to be sensitive. In other places, Paul will talk about the different roles of man and woman in marriage, and in the family, and in the church. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about in that physical relationship within marriage, there's a giving of yourself to the other person. A submissiveness. Not a dominance, not a dictatorship, but a, a, a reciprocal submissiveness one to, one to another. Right? You relinquish your right to the other one. And the other one relinquishes they're right to the other one. It's a relationship not of 50-50, if you see what I mean. It's a relationship of 100% commitment to each other, even in this particular realm of the marriage relationship. Again, trying to be tactful and sensitive. And so when we're thinking about that, defraud not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. That ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come again together that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. Let's keep reading. But I speak this by permission, and not by commandment. For I would that all men were even as myself, 
But every man hath his proper gift of God, and one after this manner, and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them they abide, even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Paul is saying this, he's not, he is speaking according to the word of God, it's a revelation from God, but he's not directing anybody in one particular direction. He's really saying, you know, this is the way it will be if you're married. This will be the way that it will be if you're single. But I'm not dictating to you one way or the other whether you should be married or single. Do you see what he means by that? I don't speak to you by commandment. I speak to you with permission. He's not dictating whether somebody should be married or single. He's just saying that in that relationship that God will ordain, I'm telling you how it should be conducted. For I would, oh, we've read that. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Okay, are you getting that now? Paul's stating before he tells what he's going to say, he's going to say, now don't be firing bullets at me. Don't think this is Paul just getting on his high horse and speaking about marriage because I've had a, a particular marriage. I'm telling you what God is saying about marriage. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest I speak, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. Now this is one of these wee verses that somebody will take right out of context and say, you see, what Paul's saying is, is I'm not speaking with divine authority, I'm just giving you my opinion. That, that, that's what they'll say. And they'll apply that not just to this passage, but to the rest of the 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 the, the, the book. Let me, let, me, let me read you a quote. Um, I found this quote really helpful in crystallising for me what this passage means. We come to the Apostle Paul who will now help us with some of the implications of what the Lord taught. And actually he even expands on what the Lord taught. In other words, the Lord taught about marriage and Paul is expanding on what the Lord taught. Now let me show you something of essence of this by pointing out a few verses in chapter 7. Verse 10. To the married I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Paul is saying, I'm going to tell you something that doesn't come only from me, but comes from the Lord. So he's referring back to the teaching of the Lord. Right, okay? So we can identify that truth in the teaching of the Lord. However, in verse 12 he says, This time to the rest I say, not the Lord. He doesn't mean that this isn't from heaven. He doesn't mean that it's not inspired. He simply means, I'm not quoting our Lord this time. Referring to verse 10, back to the fact that God hates divorce and our Lord affirmed that, we saw that in Mark 10, right? I'm giving you instructions that come directly from the Lord. Here he says, this doesn't come directly from the teaching of the Lord. But I say, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now he's gone beyond the teaching of the Lord into a new area of divine revelation. No less from God, but he's just not quoting from the Lord. So can you see exactly what that, that little phrase means? The rest I speak, I, not the Lord. He said, I'm not quoting directly from the Lord. I'm saying something that the Lord hasn't said, but it's equally God's word. And then in verse 25, concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord. In other words, I can't go back and quote the Lord Jesus in this, 
but I am given the teaching as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. This is coming from me, but you can count on it because God has mercifully enabled me to speak the truth. So these hard verses don't mean he's only given his opinion. It just means he's teaching something that wasn't specifically mentioned by the Lord Jesus back in the gospel. We take time to say that because we won't have a lot of time to look at it in detail. Verse, verse 12. But to the rest I speak, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. So in other words, when a man becomes a Christian, he doesn't put his, his wife, he doesn't say, me and you have got nothing in common now, please go away. He's not to do that. And if the woman with her husband that believeth not, if she be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. I've become a Christian, don't like you anymore, be not unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, uh, I'm gone. Don't do that. You see what Paul's saying? Really clear. For the unbelieving wife is sanctified for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. By well, that's a hard one, isn't it? That doesn't mean if you're saved, your wife will automatically be saved, or if you're saved, your husband will automatically be saved, or your children will automatically be saved. That's not what it means. To sanctify in this context means to be set apart into a special place of privilege, right? So if there's a Christian in the family, God's at work in that family in a way that he wouldn't be at work in a family that had no Christian in it. And so they're kind of in a special category. You've got a Christian in the family. And so you're in a special position of privilege, having a Christian mum, a Christian mother, a Christian dad, or a Christian husband, or a Christian wife. That puts the children under an umbrella of Christian influence. And it just sanctified in that sense means just to set them apart in a special place. And if ever there was a time where children need to be set apart in a place of spiritual influences today, folks. Isn't that right? Thank God for Christian parents that can protect their children. It's not a guarantee of salvation. That's not what he means. But it does exert a good influence on them, doesn't it? So, but if the underbelieving depart, let them depart. And a brother or sister is not under bondage in some cases, but God has called us to peace. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? But here's the unbeliever and the partner says, I don't care what you're doing, I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm leaving you because you've become a Christian. Folks, that is not beyond the bounds of possibility. Matter of fact, I've known of several cases where that's actually happened. Right? So how does the wife and the husband react in that situation? Do they hang on and say, no, I'm not going to let you go. You've got to stay. You just say, look, just go. Let them go. Let them go. You can't do anything about it if that's what the unbeliever chooses to do. But what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? Do your best to stay together. That's really what he's saying, isn't it? Because you've no idea what God could use you to, to save your husband or your wife. You could actually be used in another place. In 2 Corinthians, he'll, he'll very clearly teach that a Christian should not seek an unbelieving partner. Right? But this is a situation that's happened after they've been saved. Both of them have been unbelievers and one of them's got saved. What happens to the marriage subsequent to that? That's what this particular thing is doing. Now, folks, I, I, 
They'll probably listen to this. So I need to be careful what I say, but they're not here this morning. We've got a couple amongst us this morning, and a wife has lived and prayed for her husband for years. And we saw him saved. And just to see that is unbelievable. Because even their family said the last thing they ever thought about was their dad becoming a Christian. And the reason, a great factor in the husband becoming a Christian was the godly, consistent testimony of a a wife that lived for the Lord. We have this right in our very midst. We can see firsthand how God can be faithful in a situation like that. Let me tell you, we praise God for the two of them. We thank God that he did a work in their life. And it takes great, gives us great joy to see God continuing to do that. So, but as God has distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called everyone, so let him walk. So I ordain in all the churches. Is any man called being circumcised, let him not become uncircumcised. If any man is called an uncircumcision, let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing but the keeping of the commandments of God. Let every man abide in the same calling when any is called. Are you called being a servant? Care not for it. But if thou mayest be free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant in the Lord's free man, likewise also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Here we're back to where it started. At the end of chapter um, chapter 6. Ye are bought with a price. You see that? This whole... This whole passage is about physical relationships. That's the, the, and what he's saying is your body is not to be used in any way that you choose it to be used because the Lord bought your body as well as your soul when he saved you. You were saved body, soul and spirit. The whole lot of you belongs to the Lord. Your eyes belong to the Lord. Your, your hair belongs to your Lord. Your hands belong to your Lord. Your feet belong to the Lord. Everything we are belongs to the Lord. Be ye not the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. A few minutes just to give a couple of big lessons before we finish. Now, concerning the things that you wrote unto me, in other words... <laughs> This is questions that the Corinthians were asking Paul. This was not Paul looking at the Corinthians and saying, excuse me, I need to address one or two issues with you. Remember the, the schisms? And go to law? And Paul saying, listen, I, somebody so told me what's happening and I'm telling you what the word of God is. This is a question that they have asked him. Now there's a few questions that they are going to ask him in the next section. The first Corinthians are four actually. But this is the first one. And the first one is this. Is it good for a man not to touch a woman? In other words, not to have physical relationships with a woman. Because we know what Corinth was like, folks, don't we? Marriage was a shambles in Corinth. If you look at the history, there's different types of marriages in the, uh, in Corinth. A man was formally married to a woman, and he was really just formally married to this woman for domestic duties. She would perform domestic duties for him. She would cook, wash, clean and bear babies for him. Right? And that was his wife. But then he was quite at liberty to have a, a live-in mistress. Right? That was, that was quite acceptable. Or if a man was short of money, he would sell his daughter to a man to get married. 
and that was a marriage and then uh, if uh, somebody was looking for money they would sell themselves to be to be married so when the assembly came together there was people in the assembly that had come from all sorts of different marriage backgrounds there was a real mess a real mess and some people were saying listen it doesn't matter we're free we can just do all sorts of things and it doesn't really matter first corinthians six uh, five about the man uh, having his mother's wife there was that type but there was other people that said okay okay if that's what we are maybe it's better now not to get involved in that type of activity because it's all it's all evil it's all evil it's all evil and so what we'll do is we'll live the rest of our time even if we're married we'll live the rest of our time not having physical relationships in our marriage is, is it good for a man not to touch a woman and Paul says you got that one all wrong now folks there's been people like that down through the ages that's why monks went into monasteries and nuns went into nunneries because they thought that if they kind of separate they were, they, were, they were more spiritual if they were away from that possibility of a physical relationship with a member of the opposite sex now if you know anything about the history of the monasteries and the nunneries you'll know that these were hotbeds of that type of activity separation from that sort of stuff didn't actually so Paul says listen nevertheless to avoid fornication he says listen there's passions, natural passions that God has put in the heart of men and women that are fulfilled beautifully and perfectly in marriage. And if you deliberately separate yourself from that, do you know what's going to be happening? You're going to possibly be tempted into illicit relationships. And if you decide to stay married, to be hyper, single, to be hyper-spiritual, you might find yourself in real trouble because you might find yourself to be tempted into all sorts of stuff. Now that doesn't just happen for unmarried people, it happens for married people as well. You ever heard of Ravi Zacharias? When he passed away, stuff came out of there that you wouldn't even speak about in public. Because this man had been tempted into fornication. And so what he's saying is this, one of the reasons for marriage is purity purity there's lots of reasons for marriage one is um, one is perfection because it's not good for man to be alone isn't that right God made man and women to be married with the exception of those that he chooses for singleness we'll talk about that again but you know perfection procreation marriage marriage is the vehicle for procreation isn't it really purity that's what he's saying here marriage is the vehicle to preserve you from living an impure life do you know what the other reason for it is it's a picture of Christ in the church is it any wonder the devil makes marriage one of his primary targets in all cultures in all ages marriage has been God's high ideal and the devil says I'm after it because you know what I want to destroy I want to destroy homes and I want to destroy kids but I want to destroy the picture of Christ in the church you see when he's attacking marriages he's not just attacking people he's attacking God he's aiming at the glory of God and folks when we trivialise marriage that's exactly what we do as well and I'm always I have this mischievous 
sense of humour that whenever I get an opportunity to tell a joke, I don't think about the implications. I just just tell it. And sometimes I make jokes about my, my marriage and my mother-in-law. I don't mean it, folks. It's just my weakness of the flesh that gets overcome because I, 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 to be honest with you folks there's nothing more sacred and honourable and high than the institution of marriage and Christians should be the ones that are holding on to that more than anybody else in the world we should never undermine it and this is I, I can hear an echo because the, that is for me that teaching that's for me and so, so he says that and then he goes on to say let the husband render due benevolence to the wife, and the wife also to the husband. The wife hath no power over her body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath no power in his body, but the wife defraud not one another. What is this? Without being insensitive, it is the need for total harmony and unity and submissiveness in a marriage. I've seen many a person who God had chosen for singleness get into a marriage that's destroyed their usefulness for God. I really have. And I've seen many people get into a marriage with the wrong person that's destroyed their usefulness for God. So this is not just about being single and being married. It's being single if that's what God intends. And if you're going to be married, a matter of fact, later on in the passage, do you know what Paul will talk about marriage? He'll talk about marriage in the Lord he won't even just say marriage in Christ he'll say marriage in the Lord and I think there's significance in that folks I don't think it's just a matter of marrying another Christian I think it's a marrying the right Christian the right Christian marriage in the Lord because look at this this is all about harmony and unity and submissiveness and all being willing to, to, to do what the other one wants it's in a physical relationship. But you, you make that even broader and you say, don't be going in two different directions. Go in the same direction because two different directions puts attention and it tears people apart rather than brings people together. And marriage is a union rather than a partnership, if you know what I mean. You know, a partnership's two people walking together arm in arm and, you know, maybe can go in different God has not got partnership that, that can just link arms. God's got union. The twain shall become what? One flesh. One flesh. And Paul's saying, listen, there may be times when you, you withhold having physical relationships from each other. You shouldn't do that. Except under exceptional circumstances. And it's spiritual. It's a spiritual reason. You see that? For prayer and for fasting. I'm, I'm, I'm out of my time, but, but it's really, really important, folks, that we get that. And he says, look, I'm telling you this. I'm single. I'm single. Paul's saying he's single, right? I would that everybody be as myself. Now, it seems as though Paul was married, and we don't know what's happened to his wife. It's very, very likely that his wife had passed away because it's not unusual for people in these days and in these places to to pass early. Same in Africa, isn't it? Is it you know, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be unusual for a man to lose his wife in his forties or, or his thirties or something like that, or a, a wife to lose her husband and that because of this the circumstances. And Paul's saying, look, listen, if you can if you are single and you can stay single, that means you're in a great position to serve the Lord. Right? 
You're not in a great position to go cruises and to have the rest of you go skiing and do the just just do what you like. That's not what he's saying. Is the, the the end of the chapter will say you're in a great position to serve the Lord. But if you can't stay single, every man has his proper gift of God. One after this man, the other after that. I therefore say to the unmarried and the widows, it's good for them to abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. It doesn't mean burn in hell. It just means burn with passion. Have uncontrollable passions that you're always struggling with in your heart. And there's a sense in which there's an aspect of marriage that is a preserving safety mechanism for a good marriage and a good relationship just as such a joyful protection from the immorality and the influences that are in the world. And Paul said, listen, get it right. Get it right. Marriage should be a delightful union, yielding each other, moving with each other, in union with each other. I remember staying with that. And I know circumstances can change. I understand that, and circumstances are difficult. I understand that for lots of people, and I'm not talking about exceptions. I stayed with a family years ago, and the husband and wife, he worked day shift, she worked night shift. That was, that was just their life. That was just their life, right? And they went years, years, without spending any quality time together. Now, it wasn't because of the circumstances that dictated it. They decided that that's what they wanted to do so that they could maximise their income and maintain a high standard of living. And Paul says, that's that's Mark 10, but we won't won't go into that. Deuce, singleness for you next week, brother. But listen, with, with, with all joking aside, I mean, we, ha- we say that, do we? And you folks know that I mean this. That if God has a path of singleness for you, that's a path of privilege and honour. It's not a, Paul's not saying that's a second class. And we mustn't, folks, and I say this as sensitive, we must not let those that are single feel that we that we're looking down on them or we think they're any less worthy than anybody else. We must value people for the calling in which God has called them and value everybody for the state which God has put them in. We value everyone, whether married or single. Let's pray. Lord, we bless thee for the word. It's uncomfortable at times and we haven't covered it all today, Lord. We know that. But we pray that what we have learned might be a blessing to us. Those that have been married, we pray, Lord, it might be a marriage that's honourable to the Lord. Marriage is honourable in all things and in bed undefiled, you've said that. And if those that have to uh, walk a path of singleness for thee, may they find that a path of joyfulness. And may we who are married make that too uh, a, an opportunity for appreciation and joy too. We just give thanks and thank thee for the day. We anticipate a, an afternoon, Lord, of service and we pray that that may be blessed by a good number of people and it may be organised and the opportunity may come to hear the gospel. We just commit ourselves to thee in the Lord's name. Amen. I'm sorry folks if that was confusing but that was about the best I could do in the short period of time with that passage of the scripture.